Hey everyone. All right, given the current COVID, it appears we're probably gonna have plenty of sick ICU patients hanging with us in the ED until further notice, which means we will have the pleasure of managing relatively complicated treatment protocols for extended periods of time. So on that note, we're gonna talk about diabetic ketoacidosis. Now, DKA is one of my most favoritist conditions in the emergency department, but a lot of that stems from the fact that I get to make a diagnosis with my nose and a blood gas in about five minutes, start a treatment, and then admit them and never really have to think much about it after that. Unfortunately, that is no more. We're going to have to actually manage the correction of the patient's metabolic derangement. Luckily, DKA has a pretty well-established protocol that hopefully makes it a bit easier for everyone involved. So while we're talking about DKA, we're going to include hyperosmolar hyperglycemic syndrome or HHS because these two conditions are actually on a spectrum and the treatment of them is essentially the same and I'll touch on when it's not. So let's start with the pathophysiology of DKA and then we can move into diagnostic criteria and labs of which we need to be mindful and then talk about treatment including initial resuscitation and then the dreaded and glorious two bag system. And finally, the resolution of DKA. I would like to stipulate up front that I am talking about the management of adult DKA. The management of pediatric DKA is very similar. However, pediatric patients are much more susceptible to some of the complications of DKA, and therefore the treatment is adjusted in a few ways to better mitigate these complications. So why does DKA or HHS happen? To make this simple, the patient must have an insulin deficiency of some sort. This is either a lack of insulin production or some degree of insulin resistance. Lack of production is pretty much the hallmark of type 1 diabetes, and DKA is far more common in those people with type 1 diabetes because of this lack of insulin production. Insulin resistance is much more common in those with type 2 diabetes. They still produce insulin, but their cells don't respond to that insulin appropriately, or they don't make enough insulin to keep up with their metabolic needs. This is much more likely to lead to HHS. When there's no insulin around, cells have limited glucose intracellularly to use to make energy. The body then starts to use other potential energy sources, so free fatty acids, that when broken down make ketones. These ketones in high concentrations make people feel miserable, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain. And then as they become more acidotic, you start to see this increased work of breathing as they try to blow off all those excess acids through carbon dioxide. This is the Kussmaul respiration pattern that we see, right? Those deep, rapid breathing. Um, because they're acidotic, their cells are going to pull hydrogen ions into the cell and in return spit out potassium. The glucose, while it's still in their body, circulating in their bloodstream, but it can't make its way into cells. So this high glucose concentration starts to filter out through your urine and it pulls lots of fluid with it. It also pulls a lot of electrolytes with it, including sodium and potassium. This is called osmotic diuresis. So patients get very dehydrated in this process and they can get a lot of electrolyte imbalances as well. HHS is slightly different because typically there's enough insulin around to pull enough glucose into cells to prevent this free fatty acid breakdown. And so the ketosis acidosis side of it doesn't really occur, but the insulin isn't effective enough to pull all of the glucose in. So glucose levels gradually rise to a very significant degree. Um, and it causes a massive amount of fluid to be pulled out of cells and then excreted along with electrolytes. Patients get profoundly volume depleted and hyperosmolar, which means in this case, lots of glucose in the plasma. And we tend to see symptoms much more like 
altered mental status coma because the glucose essentially pulls fluid out of the cells in the brain to try to dilute the plasma. So the underlying solution to the problem is the same. Patients need fluid and they need more insulin. There are really five underlying triggers for DKA or HHS, and we refer to them as the five I's, infection, infarction, infant on board, indiscretion, or insulin lack. Okay, so we stretched them a little bit to fit our needs, but basically infection, whether it's a UTI, pneumonia, a viral infection, whatever, can stress a patient enough with diabetes enough to trigger them into DKA. Infarction, again, is referring to a systemic stressor like a myocardial infarction or a stroke that can then precipitate DKA. Pregnancy is a common trigger because the metabolic demands of a pregnant female changes and therefore their insulin requirements change. Indiscretion refers to those that aren't following some part of their dietary intake plan, so to speak. So they're consuming more carbohydrate-containing foods than they are giving themselves insulin, or they're drinking alcohol, which contains carbohydrates and precipitates ketosis all on its own. And then insulin lack refers to those that are not taking their insulin or other diabetes medications or those with a first-time presentation of diabetes who present in DKA as their initial symptom. Okay, so what are the diagnostic criteria of DKA or HHS and what labs do we need to pay close attention to? Well, in DKA, you really need to have three things. Elevated glucose levels, that's the diabetic part. Elevated ketone levels, so keto, and a decreased pH acidosis, diabetic, keto, acidosis. See, it's all in the name. Typically, glucose levels are above 250, although there's a rare condition of euglycemic DKA in which the glucose levels can be normal, but I won't venture down that pathway right now. Urine and serum ketones are elevated, for which is our beta-hydroxybutyrate labs a proxy. And then pH levels are less than 7.3 and progressively lower depending on the severity. Serum bicarb levels are also low, but that's another marker of acidosis, right? With HHS, glucose levels are almost always greater than 600 and can be well over a thousand, and there are little to no ketones in the urine or serum, and the pH is greater than 7.3. The serum osmolality, however, is very high because of all that extra glucose. So hyperosmolar hyperglycemic syndrome, again, all in the name. The initial resuscitation in the ED goes much like all initial resuscitations in the ED. ABCs. Now, I will caution against intubation of patients in DKA unless there's an underlying respiratory or ventilatory failure that necessitates airway management. If it's simply work of breathing, chances are you're not going to be able to keep up with the patient's natural minute ventilation while they're intubated, meaning they can breathe faster and harder by themselves than we typically can for them with a ventilator. Intubation can cause a respiratory acidosis and make matters worse. Treating their acidosis will improve their work of breathing and mitigate the need for intubation. If they start to tire out and their work of breathing drops, that's when we may need to step in and support their ventilation. Okay, A and B are covered. Now C. These patients are all volume down and they all need fluid. If they're hypotensive, they need fluid most quickly. And typically, this is better than starting pressors because remember, pressors don't work in hypovolemic shock. If they have another form of shock that's either complicating or precipitating their DKA, like NMI with cardiogenic shock, then pressors can be considered at that point. So how volume down do they appear? They're all volume down, but patients with DKA tend to be about four to six liters down, while patients with HHS tend to be more like eight to 10 liters down. 
Regardless, initial resuscitation should start with about two liters of isotonic fluid. My vote is currently for LR. We talked about this earlier, but it's less likely to cause a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, which is bad in someone who already has an acidosis. And it's less likely to precipitate renal failure because these patients may already have an AKI from their hypovolemia. Because we know they need a lot of fluid and we know they're sick, they need two large bore IVs and a cardiac monitor. The next thing I do is ask for a blood gas. I'm fine with venous because I don't care about their PaO2 and I believe the rest of it won't be significantly different from an arterial blood gas that it's gonna change my management. But there are some people that would prefer ABGs. First, I look at their pH to determine does this look like DKA or HHS? It doesn't necessarily matter from an initial resuscitation perspective, but it's nice to know. I also wanna know how acidotic but that comes later in the treatment process. I then look at potassium levels. This is a critical step. All of these patients need insulin, but insulin will drop your potassium levels. That's why we give it when people are hyperkalemic, right? Insulin shifts potassium into cells. Well, that's fine and dandy, but if the patient has spit a bunch of potassium out of their cells to counteract their acidosis, and then they peed a bunch of potassium out because they're hyperglycemic, they may not have a lot of potassium left to be shifting around once the insulin is given. They are almost always total body potassium depleted. If their K levels are high, so in this case, greater than 5.3, then great. That probably means their total potassium levels are close to normal, but they're actually intracellularly hypokalemic. I like these patients. We can give them an insulin bolus, shift some of that potassium back into the cell. If the potassium level is normal, I say with quotation marks, so between 3.3 and 5.3, they are total body potassium depleted and intracellularly depleted. They need potassium alongside the insulin, so the insulin can just push that potassium directly into the cell and their serum concentration will stay in that normal range, and so that their heart doesn't stop, because I hear that that's bad. If the potassium level's low, that's an oh crap moment, right? You have to stop, give a bunch of potassium before you give any insulin, or else whatever insulin you give is going to drop their serum concentration even more, and then their heart will stop. This is really like a 30 milliequivalent bolus prior to initiating insulin therapy. But really, we need to make sure it's above 3.3 and we have maintenance potassium going before insulin's given. Okay, I then look at their glucose level. If it's elevated greater than 250, I consider giving an insulin bolus, provided I can do it safely with their potassium level. I don't always do this, but most of the time I do. It's typically 0.1 units per kilo or about seven-ish units. If their glucose levels lower than 250, the bolus may actually drop their glucose levels too quickly, and so then I tend to just rely on the drip only. They still need the insulin, even if their glucose levels aren't significantly elevated, because that's the way to stop the free fatty acid metabolism and correct the acidosis. But they may need to get glucose alongside their insulin, and that's safer to do with a drip rather than a massive IV bolus. Regardless, after the insulin bolus is given, the patient is started on a drip typically initially at 0.1 units per kilo per hour, so about seven units per hour. I then look at their sodium level, not their actual sodium level, but their corrected sodium level, because all that extra glucose in the serum will pull fluid into the serum and dilute the sodium concentration, so it looks lower than it really is. There's an equation for this. I will not bore you with it because I have the program calculated for me anyway. Suffice it to say, if the corrected sodium is greater than 135, 
they have enough sodium. They need free water. So we put them on a 0.5 normal saline to correct the free water deficit. If the corrected sodium is less than 135, they can have isotonic fluid to correct their free water deficit and, hypo, and the hyponatremia that comes from the osmotic diuresis. I go back to their pH. Okay, so that, then I go back to their pH. And I'm not an enormous fan of bicarbon DKA because I don't think giving bicarb does anything, but typically if the pH is less than seven, we can give an amp of bicarb. In my opinion, this just gets converted into CO2 and water, and then the patient has more CO2 they need to blow off, which isn't really helpful if they're maxed out on their respiratory rate anyway, um, which they will be if their pH is less than seven. But it can temporarily bring the pH up enough to try to buy some time to start other treatments. But for the most part, I think giving bicarb is pretty much like pissing on a wildfire, but I digress. Lastly, in the ED, I think about their underlying cause. I think if they're septic, then that's the trigger. They get antibiotics and a source workup. I look for signs of an MI, I check pregnancy tests, et cetera, et cetera. Once the initial steps are taken, we get to start the maintenance phase. This means the two bag system. Yay. Now, ideally, these people are out of the ED before we have to start this because of how because it is somewhat labor intensive. And it's not really the giving the insulin and the fluid that's labor intensive, but because of how often you have to train their labs. Remember, the idea of treatment isn't to just correct the hyperglycemia, but to correct the acidosis and the ketosis. And that's actually the more important step. A lot of the time, the hyperglycemia will correct relatively quickly, but it takes much longer to correct that acidosis. There are a few options for maintenance fluids, and it all depends kind of on the potassium and the sodium levels that we previously talked about, right? If their corrected sodium level is normal and the potassium is normal, then they get half normal saline with 20 of K. If the corrected sodium is normal and the potassium is high, they get just half normal saline. If the corrected sodium is low and the potassium is normal, then they get normal saline with 20 of K. And finally, if the corrected sodium is low and the potassium is high, they get plain old normal saline. Now that being said, if at any point the potassium is low, I don't care what their sodium is, they need potassium first before we even decide what their maintenance fluid is. So in the two bag system, this is your base fluid that's in both bags, right? Whatever you decided above. Bag one is simply this base fluid with nothing else. Bag two is the exact same thing, but with D10. The idea here is that we titrate the amount of glucose up as the insulin starts to shuttle glucose into the cell. And in the meantime, we're giving potassium to hold the potassium stable as more K goes into the cell when it's needed. Most of the time, after the initial several liter bolus resuscitation, the maintenance drip is about 250 an hour. It's probably closer to 500 an hour in HHS because the volume deficit is higher, but we're gonna use 250 as our example because it's the most common rate that we use. When the glucose level's higher, so like above 300, we don't give additional glucose. The patient has enough glucose circulating. So all they get is that maintenance fluid from bag one with no glucose. As their serum glucose drops because of the insulin, we start to add glucose. The idea of treatment is not to correct the hyperglycemia, but to correct the acidosis. The glucose levels may normalize well before the patient is able to clear the acidosis. So we have to provide them with more glucose to use to make energy to decrease the free fatty acid metabolism, right? So once the glucose level drops between 250 and 300, we turn on bag two. We give about a quarter of their maintenance fluid as the D10 fluid, 
and three quarters as their just base fluid, right? So if the rate's 250 an hour, that's 188 per hour of bag one and 62 per hour from the D10 bag or bag two. So in essence, in essence, we are giving them D2.5. At 200 to 250, it's half and half. 125 from bag one, 125 from bag two, which is D5. And then at 150 to 200, we give three quarters of our fluid from the D10 bag and one quarter as their base fluid. So it's D7.5, right? So it's 62 milliliters per hour from bag one or 188 from bag two. And then below 150, we just give them D10. The annoying part is getting glucose levels every hour to adjust the two bag rates as needed and getting a blood gas or a chemistry every two to four hours to see if we need to switch the base fluid and then to assess how well the patient is clearing their acidosis, right? We consider DKA resolved when the serum ketones have normalized, the pH has normalized, and the anion gap is closed, and then the patient can eat. At that point, we start them on their regular insulin therapy and continue to check their chemistries to make sure that gap remains closed once the insulin drip is stopped. Whew. So in summary, in DKA, glucose, is a, glucose levels are typically elevated. The pH will have a the patient will have a pH less than 7.3 with ketosis and a large volume deficit, and they will be total body potassium depleted. In HHS, glucose levels are massively elevated, their pH is normal, and there is a massive volume deficit, and the total body potassium will probably be somewhat depleted. Treatment is one, ABCs, two large bore IVs and a cardiac monitor, two, two liters of fluid bolus immediately, three, check the potassium level before you give any insulin. If it's high or normal, start your insulin bolus. Four, start your maintenance fluid with your insulin drip and then titrate the two bag system to account for dropping glucose levels. Um, and then five, check labs seemingly all the time. Once the gap is closed, sub-Q insulin and feed the poor patient. The end. All right. Thank you guys. Um, let me know if you have any of the topics you want to hear. Thank you for listening and bearing with me. Um, you're doing a great job. I know the ICU patients boarding are quite frustrating. So thank you guys for doing a great job and hanging in there.